Lord willing, we'll have two sermons on Paul's prayer report to the Ephesians. This afternoon we'll be looking at that first prayer report in chapter 1. And Lord willing, on July the 10th, uh, unless you have a stated supply available, Keith said, would you be willing to commit to coming and would you be willing to be bumped if we have someone prepared to preach? So the, you'll just miss out on part two. Uh, the second prayer report is in chapter three at the end there. And you're all, I'm sure, very familiar with this, but it, it uh, bears review from time to time. Our passage for this afternoon is Ephesians 1, 1 to 23. I read from the New King James Version. Ephesians 1, 1 to 23. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Elder Greg Mann will come and uh, offer the prayer of intercession. Please stand with me as we come before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you awed by your wonderful works, particularly by the work that you have done in your people. You have promised that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not hold it back. And you have been faithful in building your church, even in places that are hostile to you. You have worked in your people to be faithful, even in the midst of persecution, and you continue to draw people to yourself. We thank you and praise you for your sovereign work in calling the people for your own possession. We thank you for the love that you have poured out on us, your people, and how you have redeemed us. But Father, sometimes when we see the work that you have done, we can become proud. We take credit for the work that you have done and then look to our own strengths and our own assets to sustain us, to, to sustain it. Please forgive us for this sin of pride. Teach us more and more to set our eyes only on you. Teach us to humbly serve you and those around us out of the love that you work in us. And teach us to humbly give glory only to you. We live in a country and in a world that increasingly has rejected you and your law. What is good is called evil and what is evil is called good. Having rejected you, people desperately look to wicked and worthless solutions to their problems. Please help us as your people to be faithful in the face of pressure to conform. Give us boldness to speak for you, even when that may mean suffering. We pray that you will do your work in this land and in nations, that you may be glorified and that your kingdom may be advanced. We pray now for our congregation we are in an uncomfortable time of transition, particularly as we seek a permanent place to worship and as we seek a pastor. Grant us wisdom in the big decisions that need to be made in these regards. We are wholly dependent upon you in these things, both for direction and for provision for our needs. We make our plans, but you bring about your will. We thank you for how you have provided for us until now. And please work in us that we may love one another through these transitions and that we may have unity in you. Please be with Jason Rice and his young family, who I pray you will be working in his body and restoring his health. And I pray you'll provide for their every need and give them peace in you as they seek what you have for them next. With Howard and Irene Heising, we thank you for your faithfulness over the past year. 
Your gracious, generous hands have provided rich experiences and friendships. They have also brought hard providences that have worked for our good and for your glory. We pray for Howard and Irene that you would grant them wisdom and that their eyes would be fixed on Christ's sovereign power, sufficiency, and presence. Bless them with diligence in prayer and the study of your word. Draw them ever closer to you. We thank you for the work that you have done and are doing in them and through them. We thank you for the gift that they are to this congregation. Lord, you have called your church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Yet a large portion of the world remains unreached. Many have not heard of you, and some don't even have your word in their own language. We pray that from your people you will raise up laborers to take your word to those who have not yet heard. We pray that you will fully equip and provide for those who go, and that they may faithfully apply the truth of the gospel, and that people of those nations may come to serve you faithfully. We pray now for Ron Graham as he brings us your word. Put your hand on his lips that he may faithfully proclaim your word, and give us ears to hear it. It is through Christ and his shed blood that we pray these things. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I think we, I'm going to have you take a seat. I think we skipped Psalm 43b, as well as the giving of our tithes and offerings. So we will go ahead and sing Psalm 43b, and um, the deacons will come up and take your tithes and offerings. And...
Thank you, Greg, for catching that. Sometimes it's the pastor that falls asleep. So, we're ready for Psalm 27D, a prayer uh, for illumination. We'll sing this psalm before the preaching. Psalm 27D. This is a psalm that I delight to sing when thinking about waiting on the Lord, waiting patiently for Him. But the opening line is, is very dear to me. Oh Lord, teach me to follow you. Instruct me in your way. And lead me on a level path because of foes, I pray. The world is watching us. And sometimes our witness is tarnished and there are unbelievers who would like to blame us for their unbelief and say, well, the church is filled with hypocrites or the relationships in the church have been the occasion of a great hurt in my life. So let's plead with the Lord that he would teach us and lead us. And as we let our light shine before the world, may the enemies of God be turned and softened. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent before the Gentiles, that when they see your good works, in a day of visitation they will glorify God. As we strive by the grace of God in Christ to walk in obedience and to keep our behavior excellent, the word is literally in Greek beautiful or good, as we do that, the Lord will use our light and our witness to draw others to himself. They see the beauty in our relationships, the supernatural work of God at work in us. And they say, see how they love one another. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>
Learning to pray is a lifelong lesson in the school of Christ. And we learn to pray in many ways. This afternoon we'll be thinking primarily about learning by imitation, although I want to share some instruction from some of my favorite teachers about prayer. If you were raised in a Christian home, you are surely able to testify to the influence of your parents on you. They may have tucked you in at night and taught you a memorized prayer and given you opportunity to learn to pray in family worship or at the dinner table. You almost certainly absorbed by imitation, their example, manners in prayer. Children and parents in that relationship, learning to pray together even. And of course, older, more mature saints are a light for us. I remember as a boy sitting in a, in a midweek prayer meeting and just listening to the older believers pray. It stirred my heart. We need to commit ourselves to prayer meetings, large and small, one-on-one -on -one, commitments to pray together and to uh, stretch and exercise ourselves in this discipline. Paul says, discipline yourself for godliness. We have exercise programs and, and disciplines and rituals in our lives. We need that in our prayer lives as well. When I was a student at Geneva College, one weekend a friend of mine organized an evangelism seminar to be led by then well-known C.J., I'm sorry, yeah, C.J. Miller. Um, C. John Miller, he was a professor at West, so well-known I'm forgetting who he was. He was uh, a prominent professor at Westminster Seminary in the early 70s when I was there, but he also pioneered in mission efforts in Uganda and uh, established Harvest Ministries, published a number of books, very influential in my life. But that weekend, as we were learning biblical principles for evangelism, we took time to pray together in small groups. And one particular time of prayer, I was sitting in a semicircle with uh, other students, but next to me was C. John Miller. And he prayed so earnestly so humbly, so fervently, so much like a shameless beggar, as he would say, that it stirred my heart to learn more about praying from his example and his instruction. We learn by instruction as well. And a dear Sunday school teacher of mine from primary days later discipled me in basic Bible study methods and also in prayer. She taught me the acrostic, A-C-T-S, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. 
essential elements in our daily prayer routine. In his little book, Evangelism and Your Church, by C. John Miller, he says this about the importance of prayer in connection with God-sent revival. It is simply that prayer starts the promises of God on their way to fulfillment. Think about that. That's a staggering thought. God has ordained, the sovereign God who foreordains all things whatsoever come to pass and works out everything according to the counsel of His will has ordained that our prayers are effectual and meaningful. If you look at the book of Revelation, you see that the prayers of the saints impact world events and the outpouring of the vials of divine wrath. Prayer starts the promises of God on their way to fulfillment. In prayer, God allows us to lay hold of His purposes as these are expressed in His promises. Each promise is a hook for pulling our faith into the heavens. There we catch God's missionary vision of a world filled with His prayer. If we could see those prophecies that speak about the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, if we could see them in our meditation on God's words and and on God's word and claim His promises, it would draw our heart up into the heavenly realm. And we would find our heart burning with the kind of missionary vision that God Himself has for this world. Unbelievable as it may seem, the omnipotent God permits our requests to activate the fulfillment of His mighty promises in history. Revelation 8, 1 to 5, as the laborers prayer, I'm sorry, as the laborers pray, he begins to ripen the harvest for reaping. Learning to pray as God's children is fundamental to the Christian life. It's even more important than learning to, con- to converse with our earthly parents, as vital as that is. Furthermore, We must learn to speak appropriately and respectfully to our Heavenly Father when we pray. Our parents expect nothing less of us than respect in our conversation. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin begins his famous four rules of proper prayer this way. Now for framing prayer duly and properly Let this be the first rule, that we be disposed in mind and heart as befits those who enter into conversation with God. I'm sure you've heard instruction on prayer that it's much like conversation, and that's good. That's important to understand, but it's more like a conversation with the Queen of England than it is with our buddies at the bar. We need to learn proper respect as we approach God and to be in awe and reverence of our triune God is not something that comes naturally. Here is my, my paraphrase 
for these four rules of proper prayer. Inspired mainly by John Calvin and these institutes, but also by the example of C. John Miller, a man who embodied this kind of humble, earnest, agonizing in prayer. When Paul said, I want you to know how much of an agony I have for you, he's talking about his wrestling in prayer like Jacob. In prayer, we enjoy intimate conversation with God characterized by appropriate worship and reverence. We come as earnest, persistent beggars. We come humbly, giving all glory to God, and yet we come confidently and boldly in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that God will hear and answer our prayers. Jesus wanted his disciples, and he wants you and me to pray with this kind of boldness as well. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. He's laid the groundwork in his, his sacrifice at Calvary and opened up a new and living way for us to approach the living God. We learn many things by observing others and imitating them, don't we? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 16 of his first epistle. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. He's speaking there about his spiritual fatherhood in their relationship. And just as a little boy might imitate his father as he works in the garden, I recall doing so. We are to imitate not only our Heavenly Father, but we're to imitate men like the Apostle Paul as they imitated Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he commanded, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So we would do well to learn how to pray by meditating on his prayers and prayer reports. Of course, Scripture provides many examples And there are many prayers of Paul. So I'm not suggesting this afternoon that you practice praying like the Apostle Paul prayed for Ephesians solely and only in that vein. But there's much to be learned by memorizing his prayer report and using the pattern that he used in prayer. I recommend memorizing uh, large portions of Scripture, memorizing these uh, sections in Ephesians, writing them down on a card and reviewing them frequently, but consciously imitating Paul in his manner of prayer. As I said, Scripture provides many inspired and exemplary prayers for us to emulate. A former pastor of mine has published a book of 366 daily devotions on the prayers of the Bible. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Gordon J. Ketty. We could think of Abram and Jacob who wrestled with God and prevailed. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. Think of his Psalms. Solomon, Daniel, Nehemiah, and of course preeminently Jesus and his apostles. When we look at Jesus praying in the garden or in the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, we see the perfect exemplary model for prayer. And the disciples didn't miss that. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. They watched him pray. They, they were in his presence as he wrestled. Peter and James and John sadly fell asleep during that 
agony in the garden when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Yes, it is important to learn from older, more experienced prayer warriors as well. This afternoon, I suggest we focus especially on Paul's prayer for and his prayer report to the Ephesians. And as I said, we'll do this in two parts, Lord willing. If I'm allowed back on July 10th, we'll look at the second part, uh, the prayer report in chapter 3. Over the past three or four years, I've preached several times on this portion of Scripture, but this is a new sermon. And it's with great joy that I discovered about a year and a half ago a book by D.A. Carson. And I thought I brought it with me. D.A. Carson, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Praying with Paul. It's now in its second edition. He has thoughtfully reflected on all Paul's prayers that are recorded for us in Scripture. I've recently been reading this book and am nearly finished and know that it will be a resource that I will return to again and again. Brothers and sisters, D.A. Carson has deeply convicted and lovingly provoked me to greater zeal in my own prayer life. I thought I was a prayer warrior, but I found myself convicted that I'm not as disciplined in prayer as I ought to be. I'm not as as overwhelmed with the glory and majesty of God as I ought to be when I come to pray. I'm not as moved and deeply touched as I ought to be as I hear about you and your faith in Christ and your love for one another. But these are things that stirred Paul's heart to pray faithfully and consistently in his disciplined times of prayer. When he says, I haven't ceased to pray, he's not saying, I pray all the time nonstop. He's saying, in my disciplined routines of life, I haven't stopped praying for you. I'm praying these things for you. And I want you to hear this report to encourage you. In Carson's preface, he wrote, This book began its life as a series of seven sermons preached in various settings. The sequence of seven was delivered in only one place, the Church Missionary Society Summer School in New South Wales in early January 1990. Born on December 21, 1946, Carson is now 75 years old, having seriously practiced praying with Paul for at least 32 years. He testifies in the preface that God's strength is displayed in our weakness. For the meetings in New South Wales were full of the presence and power of the Lord. It was a commitment to speak that he had made before his mother passed away. And when encouraged by his father and family members to continue on and fulfill that commitment, he found that it was in the midst of trial and trouble and discouragements and sadness and grief that God poured out his Holy Spirit. He concludes chapter 3 with this exhortation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, at the heart of all our praying must be a biblical vision 
That vision embraces who God is, what He has done, who we are, where we're going, and what we must value and cherish. That vision drives us toward increasing conformity with Jesus, toward lives lived in the light of eternity, toward hearty echoing of the church's ongoing cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. That vision must shape our prayers so that the things that most concern us in prayer are those that concern the heart of God. Then we will persevere in our praying until we, we reach the goal God has himself set for us. We can advance our mastery of godly prayer by simply practicing and rehearsing Paul's exemplary prayers. I've been doing this for the last three or four years, just using this as a template, as a guide, and meditating on this and letting it steep in my heart. But to, do, but to effectively imitate his praying about and for the Ephesians, we must consider his motivations, his requests, and his goals. We'll look first at his motivations for this first prayer report and request, or the first part of this report. I really believe it's one, one prayer report. In chapter 2, he just gets uh, caught up in all the glory that he gets uh, off on a tangent, or it's not a tangent, it's a, uh, a glorious meditation on these things. I'll mention uh, just some motivations that drove him to make this first petition with its three goals. We find it in the first part of chapter 1. You'll notice in verse 15 he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The therefore is a reminder that the things that he's been saying previous to this are his motivations for praying. Perhaps his first motivation is just to report that they have come to faith through the preaching of the gospel. Does it thrill your heart when you hear of someone who has come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel? It's a miracle. Just like Isaac was a miracle baby. You and I, born again, by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is a wonder to behold. And as much as I delight to see and hold a newborn baby in the flesh, it is infinitely more glorious to think that you and I were once babes desiring the sincere milk of the Word, nursing and drinking in the milk of the Word. And now as we grow and mature, we're digging into the meat of the Word. And that's as it should be. But to hear about someone coming to faith, when I meet a, a new Christian, wherever I am in this wide world, I'm thrilled to know that they are part of the family of God. That we're brothers and sisters. We have a bond. And it's, it's something that we need to nurture and to constantly be aware of in our lives. And then to see, especially congregations that model well love for one another, 
Keep your behavior excellent, beautiful before the Gentiles because when they see your good works, it will glorify your Father in heaven. It's a thrill to hear of revival in congregations or in other parts of the world. It makes my heart sing and it motivates me to pray. But you go back to the the beginning of the chapter and Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We sang in that psalm about the well-provisioned house of the Lord. He's generous and with all his bounty and largesse, he shares his gift. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from heaven above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's not like the sun and the moon and the changes. He's constant. This word blessed gives us our word eulogy to speak well. We bless God when we praise His name, when we speak well of Him and His works, when we gather together like this to enthrone Him upon the praises of Israel. We honor Him and worship Him. We don't give Him anything other than our praise and describing to Him the glory that is due His name. Paul says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we think of Abram blessing his sons. It was a verbal blessing, a pronouncement, a prophetic pronouncement of blessing upon his sons, of Jacob when he blessed Joseph's sons. He was... Uh, bestowing a tangible blessing upon his sons. The word bequeath comes to my mind. If you've had the experience of inheriting from a loved one, you have a glimpse of what Paul is talking about here. He speaks of our inheritance in these things. In verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance we have received blessing upon blessing. This word to bless here means speaking well of our brothers and sisters too. Not running each other down, but speaking well and praising where praise is due. But it evolves into this sense of pronouncing a blessing. When Greg was praying for you this afternoon, he was blessing you with well-chosen words and a heartfelt pastoral spirit. These are motivations to pray even more. But Paul, in a glorious reconnaissance of the redemptive plan of God, thinks about the fact that we have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That God set His love upon you and me and us together as God's people from before the foundation of the world. This is what He had in mind. The building up of a spiritual house of worship with living stones. He foreshadowed it with glorious glorious temples like Solomon's and Zedekiah's embellished by Herod as the 
stage for Christ's ministry on earth. But really the scriptures teach us to look toward that spiritual house of worship and to contemplate what God is doing. God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Whatever your notions of predestination, you need to understand that God planned for this and He's working it out after the counsel of His will and He's determined that we would become adopted sons in His family. And His purposes never fail. And all of this is to the praise of the glory of His grace because all of us are undeserving and can say with the Apostle Paul, we're the chief of sinners. When you look at, our, at your own heart, you know that you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, from the dominion of the devil, and set free to live a life of holiness and godliness. This isn't fatalism or a, a, a doctrine that we can lean back on and say, well, I'm predestined, I don't have to spend much effort striving. That's precisely what we must do. For being predestined means that we will be stirred up by the work of God in us to do will and to do His good pleasure. That's why Paul was so thrilled to hear about the faith and the love of these saints. He said, God's at work here. Another time in, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, I know you're the elect of God because when I preach, I preach with conviction and confidence. And I know that today as I'm preaching here that you are God's precious elect and that God has a purpose for you to shine in Colorado Springs. And I'm thankful that you're in this uncomfortable transition, as Greg put it in his prayer. I'm glad that God is stretching you and challenging you. And it will test your charity. It will test your patience. But be of good courage. Let your heart be brave as you wait upon the Lord. Paul goes on to speak about this redemption, another motivation, really, to pray. Think about how much your sins have cost Christ. You've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, the, the perfect, blemish, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. He bore your sins on the cross. He paid your debt. You've been set free by His stripes and suffering. These are the riches of His grace abounding toward us in wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ which are in heaven and which are on earth. And we'll think more about that in part two. Paul's stewardship of the gospel, the fact that he understood that God had anointed him and called him to preach as a Jew to the Gentile nations, and that God's plan of salvation was never to be limited to the house of Israel. Israel was to have a missionary vision like our father, and they lost sight of it. Paul caught this glimpse of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the seas. 
knowing that the nations would come to Christ. One of my favorite things to think about is what he says in Romans when he says that as Gentiles come to Christ, the Jews are provoked to jealousy. It's like a pouting child on the playground who doesn't want to join in the fun and the children are having fun and the teacher is, is doing such wonderful things that out of the corner of their eye, the pouting student thinks, maybe I should join in. And eventually they warm up and participate. Paul says that's going to be the most glorious revival in the history of the world when Israel looks upon him whom they pierced and turns to Christ. There's so much more here about motivation and I have to hurry on to the request and the goals. But he says that you trusted when you heard the gospel. And I, I love to think that when the gospel is preached, even in an ordinary setting like this, that there might be some adult or some child in whom the light begins to shine. Just as God commanded the light to shine at the beginning of the universe when he called all things into existence by the word of his power, the preaching of the gospel is the occasion for sinners being born again and becoming new creatures in Christ. Well, these are the motivations that I see in this first chapter that led him then to make this request and offer these three goals. There are really two requests. In chapter 1, the request is that we might be, that, that he might give us the spirit of wisdom in the revelation and knowledge of God. We're praying for revelation and enlightenment. In part 2, in chapter 3, Lord willing, we'll consider the prayer for power. Carson, in his books, book, divides two chapters along these lines. Praying for revelation and praying for power. And that's what uh, we have here. His first request is found in uh, this section, chapter 15 through 23. Here's the request in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Okay, first of all, who's the Spirit? Or what do we mean by the spirit of wisdom and revelation? I believe this is the Holy Spirit. We should always be praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us. While there was only one Pentecost, we are more or less filled with the Spirit. And that's why we sing psalms, hymns, and songs, spiritual, to be filled with the Spirit. We come together to worship and to be filled like a balloon is filled with air. We need to be filled again and again. We need to drink from these rivers of living water again and again. Paul is praying here that the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Holy Spirit, would be given to us. If you think back for a moment as a footnote, in Luke 11 where, where Jesus is, is instructing his disciples to be persistent in prayer, ask, seek, knock, They've asked him to teach them the prayer and he's given them the Lord's Prayer as both a pattern to follow as well as a prayer to recite, to say. He said, when you pray, say this. When you pray, pray in this manner. At the end he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? 
Paul is praying for these Ephesians, and I'm praying for the Springs Reformed Presbyterian Church that he would give you full measures of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Who is that? I believe that the reference there is to Christ. God, the triune God, has revealed himself in a very special way through God the Son incarnate. We look at Jesus in his humanity and look at the Gospels and and John's epistles and the epistle to the Hebrews. And we see that God revealed himself through the prophets and, and, uh, and through many visions and, and in various ways. But in these last days, he's revealed us, himself to us in his son. So we look at Jesus to see what God is like. We look at Jesus in his earthly ministry and we see God and the glory of God. And that's our prayer as we pray, as we meditate on God's word, that we would... would see Christ in all of his glory. I'm reminded of Moses' prayer when he prayed, Lord, I can't do this. Don't send us on unless you go with us. God's anger and wrath had been displayed and, and, and he, he was begging God, interceding that God would show him his glory. We need glimpses of the glory of God in order to carry on, don't we? The glory of God was revealed to Moses as he was tucked away in the cleft of the rock foreshadowing Jesus, the rock of ages. And as we are tucked away in Christ through union with him, we should pray that when the gospel is proclaimed from our pulpits, that the goodness of the Lord would pass before us as it did before Moses that we would behold him in all of his sovereign majesty and amazing compassion that as the goodness and the glory of God passed before Moses and he caught a trailing glimpse of the glory of God, as Carson puts it in his book, he fell down and worshipped God. We need these regular doses of enlightenment and glorious Revelation. Well, that's the request here in this first chapter, this first part of his prayer report. He's told them about his motivations. He's telling them what he's praying for specifically. And he mentions his goals like a collapsing handheld telescope. He pulls out three goals from this prayer. He says that the, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 17, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. There's much more there that we could unpack. Another place, in another place, Paul says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We need to know this Bible. This is primarily where we get this wisdom for living and life and where we find this revelation. This is the gospel proclaimed. We don't hear it in an audible voice as Moses did there on the mountain, but as we meditate upon it, as pastors expound it and proclaim it, as evangelists preach it, we 
catch this glimpse of glory. First goal, verse 18. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. There's the first goal. In order to finish a, an arduous race or task, we need to have the goal in mind. We need to know where we're going. As a teacher knows, in preparing lesson plans, there are outcomes and objectives that they discipline themselves to articulate and put before the students. When a professor gives a, a um, synopsis of the course, he speaks about his goals. By the end of this course, you'll be able to do this or that. The hope of our calling is not just a if, maybe, it's an expectation, it's a confident certainty about what will be accomplished. God will accomplish His purposes in our lives. And what are those purposes? Well, ultimately, it's to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to be conformed to His image. Paul speaks about growing up into the fullness of manhood and maturity in Christ. When I was a little boy, my grandma used to take us grandchildren and stand us up against her her wall and she would measure us so she could record our progress in growth. Your Heavenly Father desires to see you advance from the sincere milk of the Word to the solid food. Don't stay in kindergarten for your whole Christian life and journey heavenward. Strive to understand God's purposes for your life. Think about what it's like what it will be like when we have that glorious entrance into the eternal kingdom. Think about that glorious realm where the angels reverence God and obey Him without hesitation and His kingdom is not challenged. Think of when Jesus will take His resurrected hand and wipe away your tears from your resurrected body. Think about heaven. Set your mind on the things above. Read good books like... like um, it, my mind is going blank. The um, Everlasting Rest. Read the old books about the Christian life. That's the first goal. We need to know what the finish line looks like. We need to persevere in running with endurance, setting aside the sin that besets us, and run like an athlete to finish the goal. A second goal here is found in verse 18, part B. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Paul has referred to our inheritance. But I'm confident, and there's debate about this, is Paul saying here that I pray that your eyes might be enlightened to understand all these riches and all the blessings that are yours in Christ, all the treasures that have been uh, showered upon us and these spiritual blessings. But I think rather Paul here is saying, I want you to understand how much God loves and cherishes you and me, God's people. 
He claims us as his inheritance. There's a key passage in the Old Testament that illustrates this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. When Peter tells us in his, people, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. This is what he's contemplating. Alec Motier, one of my favorite expositors of the prophet Isaiah, once said in an interview that when God looks at his redeemed people, his heart goes pitter-patter. He is in love with us because we're in Christ. Jesus was his son and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But because of our union with Christ and the wonderful mystery of being one with Christ and his chosen bride, God is well pleased with us because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are his chosen bride for his son and he can't wait for the, the wedding day he's thrilled to think about the glorious wedding day the feast the wedding feast of the lamb well that's uh, the second goal he has in mind here when he's praying but look at this verse 19 and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Paul wants us to realize this power source that's available to us. We need to tap into this mighty resurrection power. This power that brought Jesus up from the dead is working in us and available to us. And we tap into it like plugging in an electrical cord into the socket. We plug into it through prayer. As we pray, we are drawing upon that power. And we need to realize, we need to see this glorious and mighty power. And that leads to the second petition that we'll look at, Lord willing, on July 10. That God might strengthen us with might in the inner man. And there are implications of that power at work in our lives. But here, he goes on to reflect upon this might and power that brought Jesus up from the dead. And in chapter 2, he launches into this glorious uh, meditation on the fact that God is rich in mercy. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together in Christ. We, therefore, need to be aware that God is up to something grand Christ came in his earthly ministry and like a bulldozer 
a, a construction worker, a deconstruction worker on a bulldozer, he plowed through that wall of partition. Jew and Gentile are now to be reconciled as one in Christ. And all of this glorious summing up of all things in this universe is coming to a great and grand climactic conclusion. And that will lead him into his second petition. I'd like to conclude with the thought that we're engaged in a, in a glorious drama, a redemptive drama, a drama of redemption. God is the playwright and the director and the producer. He has given us all that we need for godliness. And we, like junior hires or high schoolers in a high school play, have a part and a role that has been given to us. And as we faithfully portray the grace of God in this world in lives transformed in holiness and godliness, the angels in the heavenly theater are on the edge of their sea marveling at what God is doing, rejoicing when one sinner repents. This ought to stir us up to pray for the conversion of many and to use us in God's missionary purposes.